So yeah, it's been mentioned before, what we're talking about tonight is sin, all right? But not just sin, we're going to talk about responsibility, we're going to talk about repentance, um, and my hope is that tonight you guys would be able to answer a question, right? And it's, it's, a, it's, it's a seemingly funny question, um, but I want you to be able to answer it yes, right? And, and the question I want you to be able to answer by the end of the night um, is, do you want to live a life where you can actually say, I don't have any regrets, Okay, like, I think right now you're like, yeah, of course I want to. But, like, really, do you want to live a life where you can look back and say, I don't have any regrets? I, like, do you want to live a holy life? And so my hope for tonight is that you'll be able to answer that in the affirmative, right? Not, not just in your mind, but that you'll actually want to live that out too. So that's where we're going tonight. That's what we're going to talk about um, is sin, responsibility, and repentance. And so before we get into that, okay, so... I want to tell y'all something cool. Um, how many of you guys have, like, like an ancestor? Like, maybe you did ancestry. Maybe you know. Like, you have an ancestor, like, that people might know. Does anyone have anything like that? Okay. Ooh, a couple of y'all. So, I have, on my phone, I can pull it up. It's a direct, dis- like, lineage. Um, it jumps back and forth from, like, you know, men to women and, and whatnot. But to a man named William Bradford... That might not mean much to some of you. He actually came over on the Mayflower, and he was the governor of the Plymouth, um, Plymouth Colony for like a year or so. And so I can like trace my lineage back to that. And I think that's pretty cool. And so like some of y'all raise your hand. Like who, who, are, you, who are you related to? Who are you related to? Okay. A famous painter. Who do you got? William Wallace. Hey, okay, she wins. She wins. I don't, no one else can say it. That guy, Braveheart. I'm sure Braveheart probably doesn't depict him right, but that movie's awesome. Um, what if it wasn't, what if William Wallace wasn't Braveheart and I was so confident that I had that right and y'all are all just like, yeah, we can't tell him. Um, he's in Die Hard? Wow. He, he lived two lives. Um, so that's one cool ancestor I have. I have another pair of ancestors that I think. Um, it's pretty crazy. I actually have um, a written document from them. They're, they're a long time ago. Um, and is it cool if I share like what the, what was written about them? Is, are you cool with that? No. Okay. Well, I'm going to tell you anyways. All right. Um, so this is what uh, this is what's written about them. It'll be up on the screen. It'll be up there. These are my ancestors. I know you guys laugh. They're your ancestors too. Okay. So this is what it says. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, okay, he says to Eve, Did God really say, you must not eat from the tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. And then the devil says, you will certainly not die to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from, the, from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together 
and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So this passage, this is Genesis, this is the, this is the very beginning, the first man. Most of, most of you guys know Adam and Eve, right? You, know, you probably have heard the story. Um, and this passage is going to be our foundation for tonight, okay? As we look at sin, as we look at repentance, we've got Adam and Eve, the first people on earth. God gives them one command. He says, don't eat from this tree, right? And it's not an arbitrary command. What he's really saying is, trust me, okay? You don't, I didn't tell you why, but trust me, right? And what do they do? They don't. They eat, and we get the rest of humanity. And so what we're going to do is we're going to be building. We're going to use some building blocks. It says building blocks. I have a little 10-month-old. She doesn't know how to stack stuff. She just knows how to knock them over. Um, But we do have building blocks, right? And we're going to make something that's not going to knock over tonight. Um, And so as we kind of go through Genesis 3, there's three realities to this this, this, building. kind of structure we're going to build tonight, okay? And so the first thing that I want us to understand as we, as we address sin, as we look at it from a biblical perspective, is something that it's, it's a foundational building block, okay? And it doesn't, may not seem like it connects, but I, I, but I need you to hear this, right? And so this first thing that we're talking about that is foundational to everything is that God is a person, okay? God is a person. This is a fundamental reality we must understand if we're going to understand anything about sin, okay? And so, you're probably like, okay, yeah, I mean, God's a person, like, cool, that's, like, yeah, I knew that, okay? But what I, what, what I want us to understand, and I, I've realized this about myself, is that a lot of times I take things for granted, right? And so I say, oh, yeah, God's a person. But, but we need to understand, like, God really is, like, like, Evan, you're a person, okay? You can be hurt, you can be interacted with, you can be joyful, right, because of things that I do, and God is the same way. And so in the Old Testament, there's this big, fancy term. You don't need to write this down, but it's called anthropomorphic. Anthropom- Let me try that again. Anthropomorphic, okay? And all it is is this idea where it's like, you've probably read this passage, like God hides us in his wings, okay? Does that mean God actually has wings? No, but what it's trying to say is that, that God is going to shelter us, right? Or, you know, that, that, but then there's also some of these passages where it says, God smiles over us. So then you say, well, does God have a mouth? I don't know, you know. But, but what is that trying to convey? That God has emotions, right? And I know it sounds funny. I know I feel like I'm just kind of beating a, a simple reality, but, but God is a person, okay? The same way that you're a person, that you can be interacted with, that you can be hurt, that you can be pleased, God as he reveals himself in the Old Testament, is a personal, relational God. He's not this angry judge in the sky that just kind of throws down lightning bolts at us. He's a personal God who is grieved and hurt and joyful and pleased 
depending on how people respond with him, right? And then in the New Testament, you get this like to the next step because Jesus is God's son. He comes, right? He is God taking physical form as a man. And like this is where like the first time when I really realized just how much of a person God was, was when I think about the fact that, okay, Jesus spent three years with his disciples, right? He spent about 33 years on earth, but he spent three years with his disciples, and he camped with them, and he hiked with them, and he, and he made food with them. And I start thinking about him like, okay, the last time I was sitting around a campfire was Sunday night with a bunch of people, right? We're cracking jokes. People are eating s'mores. Some people are like stepping away because they're like, you know, they got a fart or like something, right? Like, and I, I, I say that kind of silly, but like Jesus sat around the campfire and his disciples were probably like, they were just being dudes. Like they're burping, they're throwing, like I, I mean, I, I picture that Jesus is having dinner with his friends and when Simon turns around to grab something, Jesus takes a grape and throws it at him. Like seriously, like Jesus was a, he was a person. And the Bible says that God became flesh. Like, and I know that's so silly, but like, it, it just did something for me. I'm like, Jesus had friends. He had brothers. I'm sure he made jokes with them. I'm sure that they, were, they teased each other. They hiked. He got tired. He sat down. Like, God is a person. He, he does things. And he relates to us. And yes, this anthropomorphic idea is supposed to communicate something and show something about God. But the thing that's trying to communicate to us is that he is a person. That he, he's not like us in the same way that you are, but, but we're like him, right? The fact that you're a person is because we're a reflection of who he is, what he is like. And so this is the foundational building block, okay? So you're kind of like, all right, maybe some of y'all are really smart and you're already like, I know where this is going. Maybe you don't. And that's fine. But the reason why this is a foundational block is because the next block that we stack on top is that sin is an attack on God. Okay? It's not an attack. It's not like you're, you're shooting cannonballs at a wall. You're shooting arrows at a person. Right? Like that, that sin is an attack on God. Um, and so we're going to unpack this real quick. And so there's this beautiful book. One, I, honestly, it's, it's in my top, like, five books ever. Um, you can write it down. It's called The God They Never Knew. The God They Never Knew by George Otis Jr. And he has a whole entire chapter on sin. And so I'm, I'm, look, I'm not this smart. This guy is incredible. I'm resourceful. I'm not that smart. But he has this whole chapter on sin. And we're going to go through some of these, okay? We're not going to take as long. I want you to go buy this book. The whole chapter actually is for free on our website. If you want to read just this chapter, just go to our website. It's there. But I'm going to go through this, okay? And so what sin isn't, okay? So on the left we see sin is not. Sin is not a sickness, okay? Sin is not something that I sneeze on Frankie and, oh, shoot, now he's, now he's sneezing. Now he's got a cold, right? It's not just something that is an unfortunate you know, happenstance that, oh, I couldn't control. Like, you know, it just, it just happened to me that, that one day I just, I just got sick and now I sin, right? Um, sin is not a sickness. It is not this, this disease that gets, you know, that's contagious in, in the sense of, um, 
like something that's physically being passed, right? Which goes into the next one. Sin is not a substance, okay? So um, sin is not something you couldn't, you couldn't take a drop of your blood and find like a sin particle, okay? Um, we see in Scripture, in Ezekiel, God says, through the prophet Ezekiel, he says, I will not judge the son for the sins of the father, nor will I judge the father for the sins of the son. Okay, so if Evan sins, his dad's not going to be held guilty for his sin. I keep picking on you. I'm sorry. (laughs) If Ryan sins, his dad's not going to be held guilty, and vice versa. Now, that doesn't change the fact that consequences happen. So if, if Ryan's dad sins, there's consequences that still affect him. But he's not held guilty before God. It's not some substance that's passed on generationally, right? That sin, ultimately... It's with you. It, it's st- it, the, the, the buck stops at you, right? It's not something that's passed on. It's not some substance. Sin is not a slip. I've gotten some flack for this, but I'm going to tell it to you anyways. If you have your Bible, and you go to Genesis 3, you can write in your Bible. If you didn't know that, you're allowed to write in your Bible. If you open Genesis 3, right above the top, it says, The Fall. The fall. And I understand what they're saying. They're saying that it was a fall from grace. But what often happens is we read that and we think it's like, woo, it tripped. Like, I slipped. Sin is not a slip. Sin is not a trip. It's not an accidental fall. Okay? And so what I want you to do, if you're willing, you don't have to, but I scratch it out and I write the rebellion. It wasn't a trip. Now, I understand. Theologically, okay, yes, they fell from grace. But I need to get it in my mind. This was not, they didn't just trip into this. They chose this. They rebelled against what God told them. Sin is not a slip. Sin is not a suggestion. Molly, where are you at? Homegirl just preached like everything I was saying. I, kind of, I leaned over to Tommy. I was like, she's literally saying everything I'm saying. Um, sin is not a suggestion. Okay, this is a big deal. Temptation is not sin. The Bible says that Jesus was tempted in every way and yet remained perfect. Jesus was tempted in every way and yet he did not sin. Temptation is not a sin, okay? So sin is not a suggestion. It's not just this like, like that's actually to me pretty helpful to realize, okay, look, like if I am tempted, that doesn't mean I sinned. And I think so many of us beat ourselves up. because I'm thinking about this. I'm sinning, right? And that's just not the case. And then finally, sin isn't the status quo. I'm sure everyone has heard this. I'm just human. There is a reality, okay? I I need us to understand this. Not a single person in this room is sinless. No one is. So yes, part of being human is that we've all sinned. The Bible actually attests that. It says all have fallen short of the glory of God. But that is not the same as saying, oh, we all sin, so I guess I'll just keep doing it. Does that make sense? Like, sin is not a status quo. It's not, well, we all do it, so I guess I'll just keep doing it. And that is what I hear most often when people say, I'm just human. What they really mean is, I'm human, so I guess I'll keep doing it because I'm going to mess up anyways. Sin is not the status quo. What sin is, is on the, on the other side. Sin is captivity. Sin is corrosive. Sin is calculated. Sin is cruel. Sin is continuous. It's captivity. You are, the Bible says that you are a slave to sin. If you are not right with God, you are a slave. You're bound, right? That, that This is all you want. 
You don't want you, the, the gate is open. Jesus has opened the gate, and you don't even want out. Sin is corrosive. It, it, it's, it literally wears away at every aspect of your life. Sin has physical corrosion. I mean, I don't believe any God, I don't believe God ever intended STDs to be a thing. That is a corrosive result of sin. It corrodes your emotions. It corrodes, corrodes your spirit. It corrodes your intelligence. Sin is corrosive. Sin is calculated, right? I chose to do this. I thought about it. It's not reactionary. It's, it's calculated. Sin is cruel. Many of you guys have been on the receiving end of cruel sin from someone else. Seemingly just like, why? Why? Like, why would they do that? Sin is continuous. And this, I would just say, um, I believe the, that the Bible says that we have a sin nature. I don't believe that that means that it's something that is, again, hereditary. What I, th- what I believe that means is that we have grown up in a world where over and over and over again, we see everyone around us is selfish. We see people choose their own highest good, their own good rather than everyone else's good. And an impressionable baby and an impressionable child grows up and sees everyone around them and they go, that's normal. And that starts to become what they do and then it becomes habitual and then it becomes their nature. And so I, someone tells a funny example. They're like, when you're like a 12-year-old and you cuss for the first time and you're like, bleep. And you're like, like oh, that was cool. Like, I really like that, you know? And you're like, bleep. And you say it again. And, and then you're like 18 and someone cuts you off and you're like, bleep. And it's like, it's second nature. You don't even think about it anymore. It was, cho- it was chosen at first. It becomes your nature. Sin is continuous. We see it in Adam and Eve. Man, they, they, it wasn't a sickness. There was no sickness before them. It wasn't a substance. Otherwise, God was the one who created sin. It wasn't a slip. They chose to rebel. It wasn't a suggestion. The devil tempted them. That didn't mean that that was sin. It wasn't the status quo. God's status quo in Eden was holiness. I would summarize sin as this, self-centeredness or selfishness, interchangeable. Sin is self-centeredness. Sin is selfishness. It's choosing me first. And, and ultimately, you could say sin is always a choice. Sin is always a choice. And I know there's some people that are like, instantly you're like, okay, maybe, yeah, but wait a second. And you think about something, and we start realizing, well, you don't know what they did to me. You don't know what my situation was. And we start coming up with excuses. And I have seen this time and time again. I am a a naturally defensive person. Um, My friends have helped me grow in that. Thank you, guys. But there's something in me that wants to defend why I wasn't wrong, right? But what I realize According to the Bible, in Genesis 3, we see that there are four main reasons why we use excuses for, why, for our sin, okay? And so they're this. It's God's fault. It's another person's fault. It's my circumstances' fault. Or it's the devil's fault. And so you see it. So Adam, God says, you know, you've taken from the tree. What does, God say? Or what does Adam say? He says, the woman, okay, it's another person's fault that you gave me, now it's God's fault, <laughs> made me do this. The circumstances. I wouldn't have done this if the tree wasn't here. And then God looks at Eve and she says, the, the, the devil made me do it. Like the serpent, right? And in two sentences, 
They've covered all four major excuses that we give. This person hurt me. You have no idea what they did. It was uncalled for. It was unjust. It was wrong. That's why I did what I did. That's why I respond the way I did. You don't understand the circumstances. Man, like, it, it, it's, it wasn't fair that this drunk driver hit my car or whatever. Of course I responded. Like, what else would I do, right? It's not fair. Like, God's not fair. He's doing this to me. He's cruel. That's why I responded this way. And we come up with all these excuses. But what I see in Scripture is with God, there is no such thing as an excuse for sin. There's no such thing as an excuse for sin. One of my friends, um, he's back in Texas. His name is Earl Flowers. Like three people might know who he is. Um, incredible man of God. He's an accountant. Just every day, every day, like you wouldn't know him. You wouldn't think he's um, much of anything. But this man has so much wisdom. And I remember talking with him about this. And he said something that has revolutionized my view. And he said, understandable, not acceptable. Okay, and what that did for me, that changed things. It helped me to have compassion for someone who really has been hurt. It helps me have compassion. If you come up afterwards and you say, hey, 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 like you said sin's always your choice, but you don't understand. I've heard that too many times. You don't understand. And what it is is actually, I'm going to listen to you, and I do understand. What happened to you was so wrong. I'm so sorry that happened to you. God hurts that that happened to you. But that doesn't mean it's okay that you get to sin in response. Your circumstances, the devil, God, another person, I understand how you got here, but that doesn't make it. Okay, sin is always a choice. And like we said, right, more than knowing what sin is, we need to understand what it does. Sin is an attack on God. This is why it's such a big deal to the Lord. This is why he says, look, there's no excuse because you have hurt me. We see this in, uh, there's two really odd passages, um, Psalm 51 and Genesis 39. Psalm 51 is when David, if you know the story of David, he killed one of his friends that he had spent years in the desert with um, in order to steal his wife. And he covers it and he hides it. And then this man of God comes and kind of gives him this parable and says, you're, the one, you're this, this bad man. And David repents. And he says in Psalm 51, okay, he says this. Against you and you only, Lord, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. That's kind of bizarre, because he clearly, he killed his friend, he stole his wife, he hurt his nation, he hurt his family, he hurt himself. Like, his, he sinned against a lot of people. Things were never right after this. But David says, against you and you only have I sinned. And then in Genesis 39, you follow the story of Joseph, and this woman is trying to get him to sleep with her. And he says to her, he's pretty much like, look, your, your husband, my master, has given me authority over everything except you. And then he says this crazy thing, how could I do such a wicked thing and sin against God? The same idea. He'd act, he would be sinning against his master. He would be sinning against, you know, like other people. But he says, I would be sinning against God. And what these two men understood is that, yes, sin does hurt everyone that's involved. If I sin against Frankie, that hurts Frankie. But more than Frankie has ever been hurt, God hurts most. And, and when we sin, even if I sin against my brother, if I sin against a stranger, I'm always sinning against the Lord. 
Sin always hurts God. And we say it like this. You don't just break a law. You break a heart. You're not breaking a law when you sin. You're breaking a heart. And that's God's heart. That, that's heavy. Like that, that should do something in us to realize like when I sin, I'm not just hurting Brandon. I'm hurting God. And then it goes another step further and you realize that God is not just a person. He is the only innocent person who has ever walked this earth. Not a single one of you could ever actually say, I am completely innocent. I do believe you can walk in holiness from today onward, but you can't say, I'm absolutely innocent. Only God can. And sin is an attack, not just on a person, but against the only innocent person who has ever walked this earth. God is innocent. He has never done you any wrong. He's never done me any wrong. And we have hurt him. And what I realize is that sin is an attack on God. And, and, and according to Scripture, if you sin even once against the Lord, you have broken fellowship with him. You have broken relationship with him. And you are in a place where you cannot fix what has been done. It's, it's this, I got this idea earlier. If you like, if you got paint on your hands, like, like wet paint, and then someone's like, hey, can you like, can you, this, 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 this rag is dirty. Can you clean it off from me? Like run it under the sink. It doesn't matter how hard you try. You're getting paint all over that thing. You are, you have stained hands and you are incapable of making your own life clean. Your hands have been stained. They are so marred that there is nothing you are capable of doing. Molly was saying there's nothing you can do to deserve, earn, make your own self righteous. Your hands are stained. And the fundamental, the final thing, this, this building block, is that the one that we have hurt is the only one who can save us. The one that we have hurt is the only one who can save us. And what's beautiful is not just that God was able to save us, but that he actually does do something. And I think, what, to me, grace has, has taken on such a... a, a reality in my life when I realize this is what grace is, okay? If God told me that the only way to be right with him was to crawl on my hands and knees for the rest of my life, and I did that, I never got up. I did everything on my hands and knees for the rest of my life, and I die and I stand before him, he still doesn't have to save me. Even if he says, this is the way you're to live, and you live for the rest of your days, perfectly as he said, he still doesn't have to save you. He is not obligated to because we've sinned against him. And so grace is an absolute gift that says you do not deserve this. Nothing you, you could do everything you could grovel for the rest of your life and it's not enough. You could do everything I say. God says repent and believe. You could repent and believe he still doesn't have to save you. But he does. And that's what grace is. He's not obligated to. And so we see that sin, right? God is the one who's been hurt most. He's the only one who can fix our issue. He does. And he deals with it at the cross. God deals with sin at the cross. Um, I, I think it's so beautiful in, in when Jesus is praying in the garden, there's this cup, right? It's a, it's a metaphor cup. He says, Lord, 
let this, pa- this cup pass from me. But if not, let your will be done. And in that moment, God doesn't let it pass. And he fills this cup with all the wrath of God, with all the sin of humanity, with all the evilness and the brokenness and the wickedness and the, and the, the depravity. Everything that's wrong, everything that's broken, everything that's evil goes in this cup. And Jesus drinks it. He says, I don't deserve this. But I'm going to take it so that you can be right with God. Isaiah 53, 6. I mean, this just this hit me the other day. He says, we all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of this all. If there's something in you that says that's not fair, you're right, it's not. That the only innocent man who ever lived had all of the iniquity put on him. The Bible says that Jesus became sin. That he didn't just take it on us, that he actually became this despicable thing and that for even a short time God said, he said, my father, my father, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, who is innocent, who has done no wrong, takes on the wrong that we've done. He bears it on the cross, and he destroys it forever so that you and I can be right with him. And I love this, this quote. A man named Paul Washer, he says this, I have given God countless reasons not to love me, and not one of them has been strong enough to change his mind. I have given God countless reasons. Every sin I've ever done, countless reasons for him not to love me, and not a single one of them has ever convinced him to change his mind. Nothing you do will convince God that he shouldn't love you. Okay? Like the most wicked, far-gone sinner who wants nothing to do with God, God still loves them. He still provided atonement for them. Now, it's up to them to receive it, but God provided it for them in his love. And so I kind of just kind of, you know, as we start to, to, to roll this thing to a close, what, like, what do we do, right? Like, what, is this, what does this look like for us? Like, does this just mean like, all right, cool, like, I'll just sit here and I'm saved, you know, like, whoop-de-doo. Like, do I just do nothing? Does, do I just say yes and then, then somehow something happens and I just, I'm not sinning anymore or I'm right? Like, do I sit back? Do I do nothing? Or is there like something... There's, there's some part that I have to play in this, right? Because I don't, I don't think God, I was, I was having lunch with Ken today, and we were talking about this, and I don't think God is only concerned about our identity. Like, I don't think he's just concerned about you being a child of God. I think that's primary. But I do believe, and, and this is what Ken was saying, is that there's works that God has put for us to do, not to make ourselves right with God, but God wants to do something with our life. We have a part to play. And the same thing is true with dealing with sin. And so what I believe this is, is that God, a, a, a coordinate of Christianity is cooperation. Okay? Like, if you read the Bible and read it, just think about this word cooperation, you will see it on almost every single page. God asks for cooperation with man. He invites us into cooperation with him. His punishments are almost always included or are related to 
a lack of cooperation, right? God invites us to cooperation. And so there is a part that Jesus plays, and it is the part that we could never do. And it is that destroying of the power, penalty, and practice of sin. That Jesus can destroy the power of sin, right? The thing that, that, that there's a part of you that says, I don't think I can overcome this. I've done it for so long. It's so habitual. It's so ingrained in who I am. I don't know how I'm supposed to stop this. I've got a friend that I got to um, disciple back in Texas who was doing hard drugs, like, like hard drugs, right? He, he, the power of sin had a grip on his life. He was so dependent on these. And in one night, Jesus, he said, I mean, he literally you talked to him. He said it felt like chains rolled off his back and hit the ground. And in an instant, the power of sin was broken over his life. He's never touched drugs again. He never had withdrawal symptoms. He never had any of these things. The power of sin was broken, right? The penalty of sin, Jesus deals with the penalty of sin at the cross, that you don't have to go to hell. I think that's what everyone thinks it's all about. They just think, I don't have to go to hell. You're right. Jesus deals with that, that you can be with him through grace. And then Jesus' death on the cross deals with the, the practice of sin, that you can actually have the ability to just say no. That Jesus gives you, like you said, Molly, that, that the same spirit of God that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you and can empower you to just say no. I mean, like, that's incredible, right? Like, Jesus can do this. And so Jesus' part is to destroy the works of, devil, of the devil, of sin, of unholiness. But what's our part? And I believe it's this, to take responsibility for our own sin. Okay? Jesus deals with it. But we have to come to a place where we say, look, this, is, this was on me. Right? This was on me. The way I decided to respond, the way I decided to do to, to act, that's on me. And I, and I think a lot of times we don't want to, we don't want to take responsibility for our own. And actually, I'll say this real quick. I, I really do believe that so much of the, this might be a hot topic, so you can argue with me afterwards. I think a lot of the reason why there's so much mental issues today is because we have been taught as a society that no one is responsible for their own sin. If no one's responsible for, if you're not responsible for your own sin, and honestly, Molly's not responsible for her sin that affects you, and if no one's responsible, then, like, why wouldn't you be depressed and anxious? Like, it's hopeless. There's, if, if no one's responsible for all the wickedness in the world, I, I mean, I'd be hopeless. Like, but what's so cool about taking responsibility for sin, this is, this is like a paradox of faith, is that when you take responsibility for your sin, you actually step into freedom. And it's the freedom of realizing, I don't have to sin. Okay, and a lot of times people don't, they, they don't want to take responsibility for, I think, three reasons. We think God won't love us. It's kind of funny, he already, he already knows what we've done, like, and we just don't want to admit it, because there's something like Adam, he hid, Right? He hid in the garden, and he was shaking. He said, we were naked. And he, and he didn't want, he thought God wouldn't love him still. But again, I mean, we said, like, we've given him countless reasons not to love us, and yet not one of them has convinced him not to love us, right? Another reason I think we run away from responsibility for sin is feeling of guilt or shame. And um, 
whatever you believe about good or shame, you might like you might think it's like God uses it, you might think it's like of the devil. It doesn't really matter. The point of guilt and shame that I see, the reason why you feel guilty after you sin, the reason why you feel shame after you've done something you shouldn't have done, is because in our heart of hearts, we know that we didn't have to do what we did. Like you feel guilt when you do something bad because you know I didn't have to do this. And I believe God does use that to try and bring us back to him, to realize, look, just take responsibility for your sin. And I think the third reason why is we just don't want to be seen a certain way. Pride, we don't, we don't want to have to say, like, oh, I, I did a bad thing, right? And I mean, I just think, let your pride be heard a little bit and be right with God rather than like kind of keep this facade of who you are. You know what I mean? Yeah, come on. I asked at the beginning, do you, do you long to live a life where you say, I don't have any regrets? Like truly, is there something in you that like, I could wake up every single day of my life and say, I don't regret yesterday. Do you, do you long to be holy? I think there's something in us that like, it feels weird to be like, like, hey, I actually am like trying to live a holy life and not in a legalistic way. Like, we just, you, someone was like, hey, like, I think if I said like, oh, I think Micah's pretty holy, like, everyone's like, yeah, yeah, cool. But if I was like, hey, I think I'm like living a holy life, people are like, whoa, dude, come on, man. Like, you know what I mean? Like, we do that. Like, but do you believe that you could actually live a holy life today? You don't have to sin. The testament of scripture is that you don't have to sin. It's not completely on you. There's a work that Jesus does that you're unable to do for yourself. But by his power, you don't have to sin. This always riles some people up, but look, is it possible to not sin for five seconds? Okay. Is it possible to not sin for five minutes? I mean, I think so. Is it possible to not sin for five hours? I think so. <laughs> I, I mean, I believe, actually. I could just keep going. And there's something in us that's like, well, I, I don't know. But no one ever can define how long you can go without sinning. No one ever wants to because the Bible just doesn't say that. I really do believe that when Jesus says, be holy as your Father in heaven is holy, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, Go and sin no more. That he's saying something that is a reality that we can live in. It doesn't mean, if you, you, I think it's a true statement to say, I am not perfect. I can't say that I'm perfect because I've sinned. But I do think it's a true statement to say that I can live a perfect life going forward. And that's like, now you can get into the whole, will I, will I not? I don't know. But the testament of scripture is that you don't have to sin. And that Jesus affords us power over the practice, penalty, and power of sin. So the band can go ahead and come up. And uh, I just want to respond tonight. We're going to respond just as, I mean, Scripture commands us this, okay? So this is Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. And we're literally just going to do what Scripture tells us to do, okay? Sound good to you guys? So I'm going to read it. You can follow along. It says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, 
Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sins that so easily entangles. So the first thing, let us throw off everything that entangles us and the sin that so easily entangles us. This is not like a, like, like oh, God's going to like, like, no, he's saying you throw off your sin. You forsake your sin. You decide to stop sinning. And then he says, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer, the one who began your faith, and the perfecter, the one who will finish your faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And then here's the third thing. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. And what I believe he's saying in this third verse connects to the first. He's saying, look, when you consider him, you will not grow weary and lose heart as you choose to throw off sin. Because look, it's, it's a re- there's a reality. Like <laughs> Some of y'all are like, man, I really like, and I, you know, you're probably like, man, I struggle with lust. And, you know, I just, it's hard. We're at WVU, and there's all these things. I'm going to tell you guys, when you get married, it doesn't get any easier. Okay? Like, you get married, you, you have experiences now that, that add on to your, to your visuals. Right? It doesn't get easier. Like, you don't get married and s- temptation just stops. You don't get saved and temptation just stops. And, and the writer of Hebrews is saying, fix your eyes on Jesus consider him, which means to linger, to, to just stay there and sit and, and look at him and be with him so that you won't grow weary fighting against this, right? Going back to the first verse, casting off every sin. And so what I want to do tonight is I just want us to kind of before the Lord say, okay, God, not everything, but what is one thing, one, one area in my life where I know I've been disobedient and say, I'm not going to do that anymore. I'm just not, like, by your power and your strength, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to live this way anymore. I'm not going to act this way anymore. I'm going to give it up forever, and I'm going to live a holy and pleasing life to you in this area. But I don't want that to be, like, the end-all, be-all of what we do. I don't want it just to be like, oh, I've done such bad things. and Cool, like, we're going to do what the Scripture says. It spends a third of the time casting off sin. And it spends two-thirds of the time fixing our eyes on Jesus, considering him, looking to him, letting him be the one. Because what Molly said was right. If you focus on your sin, that's that's the center of it all. If you're always thinking about the sin you need to overcome, you're just going to keep sinning because all you're doing is filling your mind with what you're doing. But when you fix your eyes on Jesus and you say, you're the one who has the power and you're willing to give me what I need to overcome this, I'm going to fix my eyes. I'm going to consider you. I'm going to realize that you are a holy and innocent God, and I don't want to hurt you. I don't want to hurt my friends. I don't want to hurt myself. And so what I want to do tonight is just, yeah, just do that. Just before the Lord, say, okay, what's one area? And, and look, if you're like genuinely like, God, I really do believe right now there's nothing you're bringing to mind. Like, that's actually a cool thing. Like, don't feel bad that like, like, don't be arrogant and be like, yeah, I'm good. But, like, like, if you're actually living in, like, a right relationship with God and you don't need to cast off any sin, praise God. Like, praise God. And that's what I want you to do. Praise him. Like, fix your eyes on him again so that you don't grow weary in following him.
And so just want to invite you, this is, this is, you know, it's just the front of the room, but in the Bible, it's an altar. And, and the, what an altar was, was is a place where you, you, something came to die. Like you brought an animal and it was brought to be killed. And that animal, they laid the sin, you know, they laid their hand and said, we're, our sin is being imputed onto this. And as it's killed, we're saying no more. And so I just want to invite you, if, if, if the Lord is really doing something, to come up here and, and kneel before him and lay this down. And then stand up and just worship him and fix your eyes on him. And let him be the perfecter of your faith. And let him be the one who strengthens you to just realize, I, I just don't have to do this. I don't have to sin. I can live in a right relationship with God where I have no regret. I don't have to look back on this last day or this last weekend or this whatever and go, man, I didn't have to do that. But I can live in a right relationship with God where he is a father that is beaming and pleased with my relationship with him and my relationship with others. And so I just want you guys to respond in that way.